please stand for the reading of God's word. Once again, chapter 14 of the book of Luke, uh, verses 1 through 14. One Sabbath, when Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, he was being carefully watched. There in front of him was a man suffering from an abnormal swelling of his body. Jesus asked the Pharisees and experts in the law, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? But they remained silent. So taking hold of the man, he healed him and sent him on his way. Then he asked them, If one of you has a child or an ox that falls into a well on the Sabbath day, will you not immediately pull it out? They had nothing to say. When he noticed how the guests had picked the places of honor at the table, he told them this parable. When someone invites you to a wedding feast, do not take the place of honor, for a person more distinguished than you may have been invited. If so, the host who invited um, if so, the host who invited both of you will come and say to you, "Give this person your seat." Then humiliated, you will have to take the seat of the least importance. But when you were invited, take the lowliest place, so that when your host comes, he will say to you, "Friend, move up to a better place." Then you will be honored in the presence of all the other guests. For all those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Then Jesus said to the host, When you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks. Good morning. I want to reiterate uh, something that Mark said at the beginning of his comments, that if you've come here today for a good sermon, you've, you've come to the wrong place. <laughs> No, I actually do want to reiterate what he said. You know, we're, we're going through Luke's gospel together, and uh, we're in this section where he's journeying from the north down to Jerusalem. And so we're on this journey with Jesus, and really along the lines of what he said, what we're learning. It's not your fault. It's not your fault. <laughs> Great start, huh? Um, we're on this journey with Jesus, and we're coming to discover, and we're really we're trying to impress this on ourselves, that, that life with Jesus is precisely that. It's a way of life. It's not just a philosophy or a religion or even a set of beliefs, though it includes those things. But being with Jesus, is, it's about a way of being in the world. Uh, in the midst of a culture where people are being in the world in all sorts of ways, and we're being invited into a very distinct way of being in the world that may confront the way that we currently are in the world, the way we do things. And this morning, we're looking at the issue of, of how being with Jesus affects our relationships, how we interact with one another, who we interact with in some pretty profound ways. So I want to dive right into this passage together. 
Um, let, let me set the scene here. Uh, verse 1 tells us that it's, it's a Sabbath, and, after, and on Sabbath, Jesus went to eat in the house of a prominent Pharisee, all right? So I want you to picture it's Saturday, Sabbath. They've had synagogue, or for us, it'd be Sunday, right? Sunday church, and then after church, um, you go to brunch or maybe a, an afternoon uh, early dinner supper together, okay? That's sort of the... That's the the uh, moment in time, Jesus was at the synagogue. Now he's been invited over someone's house. And that someone is described as a prominent Pharisee, okay? So we've already learned a couple weeks ago, we learned that the Pharisees loved wealth. They, they pursued wealth. They were, they were wealthy people. Um, so they're wealthy. They were the religious elite of the day. The spiritual elite, and because religion and life was so combined in the first century Judaism, they're also the social elite of the day, all right? So Jesus is at a party, kind of a who's who of first century Judaism, okay? There'd be wealthy people there, people of status, people of honor, and that's the kind of people that are there. I assume that Jesus' status as a rabbi is what gets him into this uh, dinner or this luncheon, whatever it is, but otherwise he probably doesn't fit in socially very well with these people. And there's a very interesting dynamic going on. You may have, uh, you can't really miss it. Um, it says, uh, where does it say that? Oh, and first verse one, it says that Jesus was being carefully watched. Okay. So you've got these religious, social, and even economic elite, and Jesus is there, and he's being carefully watched. They're watching to see what he does. But then in verse 7, it says something about Jesus. It says, he notices how the guests pick their pl- the places of honor. So Jesus is carefully watching them. So they're watching him, and he's watching them. So there's this very interesting, probably tense dynamic. And really, you're seeing two very different ways of life intersecting two different kingdoms, two different perspectives. You have this kingdom of religiosity and respectability and wealth on the one hand, and then you have Jesus' kingdom, this kingdom of grace, of hospitality that is offered to the least and the left out. There's this strong contrast in, in worldviews and ways of life. And of course, Jesus um, speaks pretty clearly into the, into the moment. We're not going to talk about the healing that takes place. I want to talk about what Jesus says um, first to the guests and then to the host at a, at a party that he's been invited to. Um, before we look at his comments, beginning in verse 7, uh, just want to help you understand first century culture. We've talked about this over the last couple weeks, but um, first century society, the social order, there's my Stonehenge right there. Um, the social order was basically founded on two foundations okay, that are real key to understanding what Jesus says here. The first was the foundation of honor. All right? So first century Eastern culture is an honor and shame culture. All right, where uh, relationships are driven by gaining honor for yourself and avoiding shame at all costs for yourself, for your family, for your family name. And honor is almost inherently relational in the context of relationships. That's how it worked back then, right? Your honor comes through how people view you, whether they recognize your status or your competency, or your wealth. And it comes through the the kinds of people that you associate with gives you honor or could give you shame if you're associating with the wrong people, right? So that's the first pillar of the social order in the first world is this pillar of honor and shame. 
Uh, And then the second one is this principle of reciprocity, uh, meaning that that favors, that gifts, that invitations always came in the first century world with strings attached, right? It came with either um, implicit or explicit obligation. If I'm going to give you a gift, you receive it, but that kind of obligates you to respond in kind. If I were to invite you to my house for dinner, there is an implicit obligation that you would reciprocate, that you would respond in kind. So it is a culture... Uh, a social order where the currency of the day is wealth and honor and mutual obligation. And meals in that day, in the first century, table fellowship serves to reinforce the social boundaries and hierarchies uh, of the day. Kind of the who are the honored and who are the excluded, who are the ins and who are the outs. That's what meals did in that day. So, you know, we might picture... Um, like a Jane Austen novel, right? If you've, if you've seen or a movie, you've seen Pride and Prejudice or Sense and Sensibility, whereas there's this real honor and wealth culture and it's all about your family name and you can never really you know, interact with people who are above you and there's, there's all this sort of dynamic of honor and reciprocity built into the culture. First century culture had that kind of feel to it. So uh, here we are 2,000 years later, okay, And I think the culture has changed a bit, and yet we still feel these dynamics, even if in a more subtle and maybe sophisticated way than in the first century. But we still have certain formal things where we feel this. Like if you, right, if you're going to have a wedding and you're going to plan the wedding reception, we still think in terms of honor and reciprocity, right? You have to think about the seating chart, right? This is like, this is my worst nightmare, choosing the seating chart for my wedding. But okay, where do we sit people? And and it has to do with what kind of honor are we trying to give people according to where they sit relative to the, you know, the the bridal party. And there's a sense of reciprocity. Well, gosh, they invite us to their wedding, so we kind of feel obligated to invite them to ours. So we still feel that in certain um, formal settings even today. I think daily life and relationship, we feel it less But the dynamics are still there. And really, here's the thing I want you to... The the key dynamic, I think, is this issue of honor and and where we seek honor today. Um, Jesus says something to the Pharisees in John's gospel that I think really gets at the the heart of this. He says to them, um, how can you believe? How can you believe in me? How can you receive the gospel When you seek glory, okay, that word glory is the exact same Greek word translated honor in our passage. Same word, doxa, okay? When you seek glory from one another, but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God. Okay, this is the the heart of the issue. Every human being is seeking glory. They're seeking honor. They're seeking greatness, status in some way. And the question is, where do you seek it? And for the Pharisees, they sought it through their relationships, right? I seek glory from you, and you seek glory from me. That's, that's, I seek honor, and I seek it through your opinion of me, through your estimation of me. If you can see me as successful, or as wealthy, right, or as competent, or as substantial, or you fill in the blank, as smart, as educated, as beautiful, as spiritual, 
And it can be anything. If you see me as someone who doesn't care what other people think about them, you know, I mean, it could be whatever, whatever you want it to be. But if you can see me that way, that's what gives me a sense of worth. Is living in this world in a way that you, I receive glory based on your estimation of me. And then also through who I associate with. If I can be associated with the right people, their honor is my honor. Their glory is my glory. All right? It's looking to others for approval, for status, for a sense of honor and glory in this world. And it, it is so common, it is so pervasive in our, in our lives that we forget how harmful that can actually be to relationships. It's harmful for us, right? When we seek our glory, our honor from others, it's harmful. Because if you live that way, I know a couple of people who tend to live that way. Um, you subject yourself to a, to a life of endless social self-awareness, right? Constantly aware of what are people thinking of me. And there's something about this kind of glory. It's, it's almost inherently comparative, right? In comparison to somebody else. Like these people are t- taking the seat of honor. Well, if I have the seat of honor, then by definition, you don't have the seat of honor. So to live this way is to live a life of constant comparison. How do I measure up? Where do I fit in in the hierarchy of cool people or whatever it might be, right? And to live that life is to live a life of constant either pride <laughs> When you feel like I'm measuring up, I walk into a room, I feel pretty good, I'm prideful, or a life of insecurity when I feel like I don't measure up, or even worse, jealousy, where I'm actually jealous of people's successes. And as friends do things that are great, I can't fully celebrate with them because that taps into my own insecurity. So this kind of life where we give others, we entrust others with giving us our glory, our honor, is a life of constant comparison, which is a cycle of pride and insecurity, pride and insecurity. So it's really harmful for us. And then the other, there's, it's also, it's very harmful for another group of people. And here it is. When we seek glory from one another, there is a whole group of people that we tend to not think about at all. You know who it is? It's the people that Jesus mentions in verse, where is it? 11, the poor the crippled, the lame, the blind, okay? Meaning those who don't measure up, those who don't add add up in this this glory contest, okay? Because if I'm constantly trying to find my way, I just don't have emotional space to think about the person who's been left behind, right? I'm too too caught up in my own, you know, trying to keep up with everybody. And, And those people, I will be utterly blind to those people. That's just how it is. And so, it's this really harmful way of living, even though it's so pervasive. Seeking glory from one another rather than from the only God. All right, so Jesus confronts us in this passage. He confronts the guests or the, the, the people in the house um, and, and not only confronts us, but he invites us into a different way of life, a different way of being in the world, a different way of being in relationships with each other. So let's look at it. First, he, um, he notices and he talks to the guests. Look at verse 8. He, he's seeing them, what they do, and, and this is what he says. Uh, when someone invites you to a wedding feast, don't take the place of honor. For a person more distinguished than you may have, have been invited. So he's going after that pillar of honor, right? If so, the host you invited um, 
who invited both of you will come and say to you, give this person your seat. Then humiliated, uh, you will have to take the least important place. But when you're invited, take the lowest place so that when your host comes, he will say to you, friend, move up to a better place. Then you'll be honored in the presence of all the guests, okay? Now, I look at that, I'm like, that's actually just kind of common sense, right? Like, that's just good practical advice. I mean, imagine, you know, going to a party whether it's a birthday party or wedding, and, and presuming to sit next to the, the birthday person, and then in front of everybody, like, yeah, I'm sorry. Actually, I was hoping that this person could sit here, and then you have to, you know, move down the table like that. To me, that just feels like good, common sense, practical advice. I think culturally, in that day, that would have felt a little more radical than, it, than maybe it, it did to me this week, because to sit at the lowest seat itself would be an act of shame. Right? You, to, to sit there would be an act of, of humiliation and embarrassment. And so it would be a pretty radical thing to say, sit there from the very beginning. But what he's doing is he's, he's opening our eyes to a, a whole new way of finding honor in the world, of finding glory in the world. And it comes, look at verse 11. Here's what he says. This is the principle. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled... And those who humble themselves will be exalted. Now I don't think he's talking about being exalted by the, the host. Now I think he's talking about God here. He's saying, let me invite you into a new kingdom, a new way of living with God. A new way of finding honor. It is in finding honor through your God. And you have this God who loves to honor humble, lowly people. And he loves to humble <laughs> prideful people of status, or at least who think they're people of status. So I'm inviting you to, into a whole new way of finding honor in your life. And it comes through your relationship with God. He will honor the humble. Pursue his honor. Don't pursue honor through one another. All right, so that's what he says to the guests. Uh, and then he uh, lays into the host. Uh, in verse 12, and uh, this is an aside, I was thinking this week, like, um, I would have had such a hard time being a disciple of Jesus. Like, I'm an, I'm an Enneagram 9. Um, I'm a peacekeeper, right? Uh, and I, I would have been, like, in fetal position so often with Jesus. You know, I'd be just like, just, just stop talking. Please stop talking. Don't say stuff. This is so awkward. You've been invited, and now you're railing on the host after you railed on the guests. Like, just Stop. And I was just struck this week by the courage of Jesus. Like, the guy has got so much courage. It would have been so painful for me and so good for me, too. Um, right? I mean, come on. But he lays into the host. Uh, when you give a luncheon or dinner, verse 12, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back. And so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, and you will be blessed. Now, if the first one felt like common sense, this one feels very radical to me. Okay, I mean, wh- who of us has ever done this? <laughs> right? This is, this, is, this is radical. This is so contrary to what we do. And I don't think Jesus is saying, don't ever invite friends to dinner. <laughs> Hopefully, he's not saying that. I think we have other indications in the gospel that he's not saying that. Um, but what he is doing is he is utterly undermining this principle of reciprocity. Okay, that seems to be his, his point here, right? He's saying, you always invite people over who can return the favor. 
And that increases your status, or it, it, it preserves your status as you all kind of do your thing together. Well, here's my challenge. I want you to invite someone over who could never possibly return the favor. Right? They just don't have the means to return the favor. The poor, the crippled, the blind, the lame, right? These are people, because they can't return the favor, there is no social advantage for you in this. There's no status enhancement that's going to happen when you, when you invite these people over. In fact, just, just the opposite. And again, he's tr- just as with the, the honor principle, he's trying, to, he's trying to give us a whole new way of seeing the idea of reward in life. And it comes, look at verse 14. Although they can't repay you, they can never reciprocate, right? Reciprocity, they can't reciprocate. But you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Repaid by who? Not by them, but by God. I'm giving you a whole new way of thinking about reward in this life. Seek your rewards, not from one another. Seek your reward in God. Live your life in your relationships so that one day you will hear from God. He will confer honor and reward on you. Say, well done, good and faithful servant. I see what you did. I love it. Now enter into the joy of my kingdom. It's a whole new way of thinking about reward. So just to sum this up, in this social order of the day where it's based on honor and reward, Jesus is giving us a whole new way of thinking about honor and reward that will radically impact our relationships, right? Obviously, the Pharisees, those pillars are founded in other people. I receive honor from other people who I associate with, how people view me. And I have this whole uh, area of reciprocity and reward through one another. We mutually benefit one another. And Jesus is saying, I want to give you a different foundation, right? It is God. I want you to find the honor that comes from God alone. I want you to seek the reward that comes from God alone. And this is, um, and this may not sound radical to us right now, but um, this is pretty radical. He's saying, hey, in the, in the midst of a world where everyone's playing the comparison game, people are constantly trying to figure out, where do I measure up? How can I advantage myself socially? He's saying, I am describing a, an incredibly freed up person. Someone who's been utterly freed from that whole rat race game. (laughs) They've been freed (laughs) to do whatever God wants, to seek his arm. And they've been freed to to love people, regardless of whatever advantage that is from them. Freed up to actually have eyes for a whole group of people that often go unnoticed. Because they're not playing that whole game. I couldn't help but think of the matrix. When was the last time you got like a sermon matrix analogy? You know, like <laughs> late 90s? But you've got like this whole matrix, this whole web of relationships, the way the world works, and he's describing people who have been unplugged from the matrix. I don't play that game anymore. I don't, that's, not how I, that's not how I live. I'm not seeking honor from people. I'm not seeking reciprocity from people. I'm living by a whole different foundation, radically freed up from that whole matrix of relationships. And I want to turn and end with this idea of what, what could possibly, and I've already hinted at it, but what could free us up from that constant comparison, that constant seeking approval, that constant trying to advantage ourselves? What could possibly free us up to live that way? And what I think happens is I think that's what Jesus goes on to say um, in the second half of this chapter. Okay, So follow along with me. Verse 15, Jesus has said these very, I think, controversial and radical things in the context of this party or this meal. And then in verse 15, when one of those at the table heard him, 
uh, say this. He said to Jesus, blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. So one day God's kingdom's coming and blessed is the one who will be a part of that. And here's Jesus' response. He tells a parable. Jesus replied, let me read this parable. It goes to verse 24. A certain man was preparing a great banquet and inviting many guests. At the time of the banquet, he sent his servant to tell those who had been invited, come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said, I've just bought a field. I must go and see it. Please excuse me. Another one said, I have just bought five yoke of oxen. I'm on my way to try them out. Please excuse me. Still another said, I just got married, so I can't come. The servant came back and reported this to his master. Then the owner of the house became angry and ordered his servant, go out quickly into the streets and alleys of the town and bring in the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Notice that's the exact same group of people that Jesus mentioned in verse 13, right? Sir, the servant said, what you ordered has been done, but there's still room. Then the master told his servant, go out to the roads and the country lanes and compel them to come in so that my house will be full. I tell you, not one of those who were first invited will get a taste of my banquet. All right, so he tells a story of this great banquet. So this man, this wealthy man, we can presume, I'm going to say that he's probably Jesus himself or God or some comparison with that. But um, uh, he has this great banquet planned, and the Evite goes out, right? And people start responding. And you have a group of people that you would expect, they get the first invite, and you'd expect them all to come, but they all have these lame excuses, basically, that reveal that their commitments are somewhere else, and they really don't want to come. And it's kind of shaming to the, to the host, their excuses, but they have these excuses, the people you expect, so they don't come. And then you've got this group of people that you would not expect to come, and um, they end up being the ones who actually come, all right? It's a meal, it's a party, just like Jesus is at, and that's what's going on. Now, I think the parable makes a lot of sense. This is exactly what was happening in Jesus' ministry, right? You have Jesus who has come as Messiah, inviting people into the gospel, into his banquet, into his celebration, into forgiveness, into the good news. Um, And you have a group of people that you would most expect to come. You have the religious leaders of the day, right? In this case, the Pharisees, the the teachers of the law, these people who've been studying the Old Testament, who've been looking forward to the Messiah, who would know the ins and outs of the Messiah's coming. These are the people you'd most expect to come, and they're declining the invitation to the banquet. And their, their reasons reveal that the reason they're declining is because they have other heart commitments, okay? They have other worldly commitments, and they might frame them in terms of religious commitments, but their hearts are more committed to things like their wealth and their own honor and their own status. And that doesn't fit well with this banquet that the Messiah is giving. And so they're declining. And then you have another group of people, (laughs) the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. And they're coming. And they're coming probably because they have nothing better to do, (laughs) right? They have no other plans and they have nothing else to lose. And they see a good feast, and they know what a good feast looks like, and they want that, and they long for that. And so they're the ones who are coming. And this is precisely what's happening in Jesus' ministry, right? The religious leaders are declining, and the broken, the poor, the messy, the sinners, the tax collectors, they're the ones, they can see a good feast, and they're not, their hearts are, are open. Sure, I'll come. And that's what's happening in Jesus' ministry. I think that's also what's going to happen at the end of time, at the, at the celebration of the kingdom of God. When Jesus returns, right? His return is compared to this great feast, the wedding supper of the Lamb. And you know who will be gathered at that feast? Not the prideful, 
Not those with other worldly heart commitments of wealth and honor and all of that that they pursued. That's not who's going to be gathered around that feast. It's going to be the humble. It's going to be the broken. It's going to be all those who need, they could really, who know they could really use a good feast. Who recognize this is gospel. This is good news for my soul. I need this. I'm broken. Yes, I'm in. Right? That's how it's going to be at the end of time. And so I'm asking, what would change our relationships? This, this parable is getting to the very heart of the gospel, which is this, that God in Jesus Christ is coming to the broken, to the needy, to the poor, to the blind, right? He's offering fellowship, forgiveness. He's offering a feast of the good news. He is bestowing honor on them, okay? on poor, broken people who might be dishonored in the world, to have an invite from the king himself is incredibly honoring. He is raising up their status. His invitation itself and fellowship with him bestows honor on those who wouldn't otherwise have honor. And it also bestows grace. It is a sheer gift that can never be reciprocated, right? It breaks this whole cycle of reciprocity. They can't possibly repay it. They know they can't repay it. That's why it's good news. So the king comes to the broken to offer a feast, to bestow on them honor and grace. And the key, I think, of all of this, if you, if you haven't already picked up on what I'm trying to say, is this. It's to look at this group of people, the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame, and in some sense to look at that and go, oh, that's me. (laughs) Okay? That's not someone out there. That's me. That is my spiritual state until Jesus invites me into the feast. Turns out I'm poor. Turns out I don't have the spiritual resources I need in myself to live the life that Jesus calls me to. Turns out I'm a sinner, right? Turns out I'm blind. I don't see so good without Jesus. I think I do, but I actually don't. And I don't move so well without him. The key is to recognize that's me. That's not somebody else. That is me. And then to experience the invitation of the gospel as God bestowing honor on me in my brokenness and grace on me in my shame, right? Now, I know this is all very familiar to many of us, but I just want to ask you, when was the last time you experienced the gospel on those terms? Like, when was the last time, and maybe it was this morning, I don't know, for some of you, where you're like, I am so messed up and broken and unworthy and powerless, and the king of the universe has just, moved and invited me in in a way that I, I am so honored by this person that I don't deserve. And, I, and there's this grace for me in, in, my, in my worst place. Like when was the last time you just broke down out of the sheer gift and unworthiness of what, co- what God is doing for you and yet the gratitude that comes with that? Okay, hopefully there was a time when it happened. And if you're anything like me, there are multiple times it happens because you're multiply, multiply aware of your inadequacies. Right? But here's what, here's what happens. When that, that message, when, not so much that message, when that encounter 
with the king, with his grace and the honor that that brings to you. When that gets inside of you, it starts to change your relationships. It starts to change what you think about people and how you react with people and the people that you really want to associate with. It frees you up is what it does to go, I don't really care what you think about me. I don't need honor from you. I have the honor of the living God. He said he loves me and, and my worst. He says he loves me and he wants me. What, what could I possibly need from you in terms of my status? Right? In terms of this obligation that I do things for you and, and I do them so that you're obligated back to me. That's not my currency anymore. My currency is grace. I have received grace that I could never repay. I don't deserve. I want to extend that grace to you. I want, I want to love you, not so that you can benefit me somehow, but I, I just want to live in this grace. I want to help you live in this grace. And that is going to open my eyes to a different group of people. It just is. To the poor, to the blind, to the, to the, to the broken, to the, to the least and the left out. Right? Because that's me. <laughs> To come alongside them and begin to have a, eyes for them and a heart for them and to begin to love them. And here's the thing. I'm not serving them from a place of superiority. I'm not talking about, I'm going to go do a service project that makes me feel better, right? I'm going to go love the poor this weekend. No, I'm talking about engaging them from a place of true equality, which is to say from a place of friendship. I'm offering friendship and equality, mutuality. Why? <laughs> because we're in the same boat. Right? Like, we're, not, we're no different. And sometimes they might actually help you see the gospel better than you see it in the midst of your own sense of self, you know, uh, ability to kind of do your own life. But it changes how we interact, how we think, and who our eyes are open to. It's the power of the gospel. To change our lives and then to change our relationships, to break down barriers between rich and poor, right? Between the, the, the honored and the, and the left out. The church should look different in our relationships. It's a different way of being in the world in our relationships. So we're going to move into communion in a second, but I want to leave you with this question, which is this. Um, are you encountering the gospel? That you are that person. Spiritually, you are the broken. But God is bestowing honor on you and grace on you. And then the question is, how is that encounter with the gospel affecting your relationships? Who you relate to and how you relate to people. Let's just sit with that for a second. How is that encounter with the gospel affecting my navigation of relationships, all right? Let's sit with that in prayer and then we're going to go to the tables and experience fellowship with Jesus today. So let's, let, me, let me pray for us. Well, Lord, it is so easy for us to so quickly move back to self-sufficiency even pride, and then that moves us quickly into comparing ourselves, this, this endless comparison game that is so unhelpful. Lord, would you, would you just break down those, those walls? 
Would you remind us of our need for you? However you want to do that, just remind us of our need. And not just our need, but the way that you've met our need, the way that you step in and you come alongside us and you offer us your grace and forgiveness and your fellowship and the honor, the glory that we get because you've entered in. Lord, free us up. Free us in our relationships. Free us to see people through the lens of grace. May we be different. Refreshingly so in this world, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to end by celebrating the Lord's table. Uh, And it's a meal. Just as Jesus was at a meal and talked about a great banquet, this is a banquet. Um, And here's who's invited to the table. The poor, the blind, the crippled, the lame. All those, that is to say, who recognize their need uh, for the grace and honor that Jesus gives us. And at this table, that's what happens. We broken, messy people receive honor in fellowship with Jesus and receive his grace. Um, The Apostle Paul says this about uh, the Lord's table, communion. Uh, Whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. And among other things, what that means is, on the one hand, this meal looks back uh, to Jesus' death. And that's what we do at this meal. We remember his death. The bread is a a reminder of his body that was broken on the cross. The cup is a reminder of the blood that was shed. It's the reminder of his giving himself over for us so that we could have forgiveness and freedom and relationship. And so in this meal, we look back to his death. But we also look forward, as it says, to the day when he comes again. And so this meal looks back, but it also looks forward to another meal that we will share one day. The great banquet. When we come, the wedding supper of the Lamb, where we will eat and drink with Jesus in his kingdom for all eternity. And so this meal looks forward to the honor and the goodness that is waiting for us in fellowship with Jesus. So this is really the meal between the times, looking back and looking forward. And what I would encourage you this morning is I encourage you to come to these tables. Um, Don't come in your strength today. Come to these tables in your weakness. Come in whatever broken things are in you today, whatever burdens you're carrying. I want you to come in that place. Um, The great danger of the spiritual life, I think, ultimately is pride. It's forgetting that we are those people. Let me give you another meal passage in scripture. Um, This is in Revelation, uh, one of the letters to the churches. This was a very wealthy church that were, they thought they were pretty amazing and they're pretty self-sufficient. And Jesus said this about this church. I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot, should have said hot nor cold, but are lukewarm. You've lost your spiritual vitality. And here's why. You say to yourselves, I'm rich. I've acquired wealth. I don't need anything. You think you're self-sufficient right? You don't think you belong in that category of poor, crippled, blind, and lame. But Jesus says, I see your true spiritual status, and this is what it is. You don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. That is your spiritual status. You're just faking yourselves out. 
okay? And then he says this, those whom I love, I discipline. He's saying a hard word. He's like, I love you. That's why I'm saying this to you. So be earnest and repent. And then he invites them or re-invites them into the meal. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice, repents of that self-sufficiency, acknowledges their brokenness, and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person, and they will eat with me. So that's the invitation. To come in your weakness, come in your brokenness, and for some of you, that might, there's some sin that you're profoundly aware of. Bring that sin to the table. Confess it to the Lord. Okay? For some of you, it might not be a sin. It might just be a sense of your own inadequacy to what you have in your life right now. Bring that inadequacy to the table. Um, It might be a burden that feels heavy on you. Bring the burden. Come to the table. Experience fellowship with Jesus. And let him minister to you. He offers this meal because he wants to be with us together. So see this as a time of fellowship with him. And take your time. Let him minister. Let him speak whatever words he wants to speak. And let let him love you through the sharing of this meal. All right? You can take it when you come up, take a piece of the bread. You can dip it in the cup. You can eat it up here. You can bring it back to your seat. And this is something we do together. The other thing is we're going to do something a little different this morning. We've opened up the living room space back there. Um, And if you want to receive prayer, there are some people, some of our staff, prayer leaders, who would love to pray with you during this time of communion and and worship as this is going on. If you want to come in your weakness and to just come with people who would love to lift up some burden that you're carrying in prayer, I want to encourage you to do that. It could be your own burden or maybe your burden for someone else. And you've been praying for someone else and want someone to join you in that prayer for them. Um, I want you to take the opportunity to receive prayer this morning. And I mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, but we, we want to grow in being a praying church. We want to grow in, in the vulnerability that we bring to one another, the dependency that we bring to each other in prayer. This is when we gather, we should be, you know, praying for one another and, and not carrying these burdens on, on, on our own, but doing that together. So take a little risk. And uh, there's people who would love to just, be with you and just pray with you. All that to say, we're creating space to be broken, um, to be poor, to be messy, even though we're all put together on the outside, but to come to the table, to come to prayer, and to let our God love us. Let our God minister to us together. All right? So take your time. We're going to do a couple more songs than usual. Sing, don't sing, but let's come to the table. You're invited. It's the Lord's table. He invites you into fellowship with him to love you, to minister to you, to pray with you. So as you wish and as you're ready, come to the tables.